there is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are. And you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of Forward Thinking Investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build a billion dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Investors, where we talk to investors about all things, you guessed it, investing. Today, I'm very excited to have on the podcast, Amber Yang and James Cham, who are partners at Bloomberg Beta. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Good to see you. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Matt. Yeah. Excited to have you both on the show. You know, have followed from afar on Twitter, just the Bloomberg Beta brand, and excited to have you on the podcast to ask you whatever question that I want for the next 15, 20 minutes. So I think to start, brief introductions for both of you. Um, how about we'll start with uh, Amber. Amber, can you kind of just introduce, introduce yourself, maybe what you're focusing on at the firm? Then we'll move on to James and we'll go on from there. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Amber. Um, I recently joined Bloomberg Beta actually about nine months ago. Um, and before that, I was um, getting my master's in computer science where I focused on a lot of artificial intelligence and natural language processing stuff. Um, and then when I was in school, I also started a company um, that was using AI to track space debris and satellite collisions. And um, because of my AI background at Bloomberg Beta, I focus mostly on machine learning investments, data infrastructure, developer tools, and I work most closely with James. All right, hard, hard to follow, but James, how about you? <laughs> Uh, no, it's very, it, the whole fun of this job is the chance to chat with Amber every day about like sort of both tactical and strategic questions and big and small ones. So I've been an investor for the last 16 or so years. I started a VC firm called Bessemer and have done mostly seed stage that whole time, everything from developer tools like Twilio to some consumer things like Dropcam. And most recently, I've been doing a bunch of machine learning and uh, developer tools. And so glad to be here. All right. Uh, so we'll start with kind of a current trend going on right now in AI, in machine learning, which is like the prol proliferation of open AIs like GPT-3 and everyone's now building generative technology and things like that. I'm kind of curious, we'll start with maybe Amber here. Is the current trend of a of AI and GPT three and you know generative language and learning is this kind of for real or is this another kind of like 
hype cycle and is it going to take a lot longer for AI really to hit kind of the mainstream um, in, in technology? I'm curious if, if, if you, Amber, um, kind of have a perspective on what's going on in AI right now. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think that AI um, as a trend is a hype cycle. I don't think it's similar to um, how people got very, very crazed with NFTs and Web3. Um, and I say this mostly because the technology that powers um, GPT-3, Dolly, which is the generative image models, um, that has been in the works for quite a long time. And actually for the past like five years or so, um, in AI world, and especially like um, natural language processing, which is like the models that power GPT-3, those models are actually not very good. And so like, you know, a computer's ability to understand language and then reproduce language, like most of it was very gimmicky and it just sounded wrong. Um, but now the fidelity of these models is actually quite good where stuff that's produced by GPT-3 is actually quite plausible. Um, it's hard to differentiate between whether you're talking to a human or a machine. Um, and so because of that, like long tail um, development in the fundamental technology and also the amount of money it took to train these models, I don't think it's a gimmick. I think that a lot of investors and founders who are pivoting into the area right now and are trying to catch the tailwind without fundamentally understanding the technology, like there's a lot of smoke right now and we'll see if any of those appear to be like a clear signal, but overall like generative models, I don't think is like a hype cycle. And I think there are two other angles to this. And to be honest, this is all Amber and I talk about, like whether it's tweets at 2 AM or like whatever debriefing on some meeting. I think the other thing that's happened is that for the first time, a bunch of these language models became legible from a commercial point of view, that in part, thanks to the leadership of OpenAI and stability, there are two things that have happened. One is like, it's been clear how much it'll cost. And the other thing is like, you know, sort of the willingness to give a model away, these sort of like these precious models away, change the way that sort of people think about building new things. And then that leads itself to like a bunch of almost permissionless innovation, which is the most exciting time to be in any part of a new market. And the way that the way that you ended that is a question that I kind of have for, for you, James, which is new markets, right? You've been an investor for, for a while. You've seen a lot. I'm kind of curious from your experience, how do you differentiate a new market as one that is for real versus one that you think isn't actually for real and is of substance? You know, AI, it does seem to be for real. And I completely agree with Amber's take, but not every market that is hyped is for real. How do you kind of decide which is for real or not from your perspective, James? I mean, now the reality of it, of course, is that none of this is predetermined. Markets only exist as collective dreams between lots and lots of people, all agreeing that something works. And I think that part of what I do is I look for where the energy is. And you ask yourself, where are people really killing themselves and chewing glass in order to make something work? And also, where are the easy wins? There's a way in which you know, if you looked at a lot of the, if you looked at other markets where there was great promise, it was also true that like the early wins were just not that great, right? That the ability to get traction or the ability to find something useful just was around the corner. While what's sort of exciting about where we are right now is there's this sense that 
even these demos are useful. You know, one of the parlor games that Amber, Roy, and I play is we'll go around and try to get people to sign up for OpenAI. Now we have no commercial relationship to OpenAI, just to be clear, but we literally go around talking to senior executives and say, have you played with any of this? And inevitably the answer will be no. And we'll say, let's just sign up right now and we'll go through that little process, you know, on their phone. And what's exciting is that then for their, sometimes for the first time, people's eyes will open wide. And these will be people who approve budgets of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to do sort of AI related things. But for the first time, they'll say, oh my goodness, it can do this thing or that thing. And so they'll see it as a tool rather than an abstract idea. And that's part of what's exciting right now. I love that. I'm changing the topic a little bit. Um, going to Amber. Amber, you, you got into AI, you said, from you know using it in relation to space and like analyzing stuff up there. I'm kind of curious, like, how does someone get into space? Obviously, this industry is booming right now. It's only getting bigger. But I'm just intrigued, like, how did you find your way into doing that, that kind of technology in that kind of sector? <laughs> Yeah, so I actually started working on this in 2016, and at that time I was in high school. Um, I was finishing up my sophomore year, and I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and I went to the Kennedy Space Center every weekend. So I was very obsessed with space as a concept from a very young age. Um, and this was like before SpaceX was very hyped up, like this was before um, like their launches got a lot of attention. And so it was mostly because um, I had heard about the problem of space debris. So China had just blew up one of their satellites and it caused a bunch of fragmentation. And people were like, this is going to change the way that like countries govern what can go up into space. And so I was like, oh, this is a fascinating problem. And then at the time, um, like I had also heard of the word AI, but I had no idea what it meant. Um, and I also did not know how to code. So I taught myself how to code. And then I was like, you know, very naively, I was like, okay, I guess I'm just going to apply AI to this like cool problem because everyone was saying AI can solve any problem in society. Um, and so I started working on that throughout high school. And then, um, when I got to college, actually, um, my freshman year, a VC reached out to me and was like, I heard about your cool research project, you should start a company. Um, and I'm from Orlando, Florida, so no one was starting companies. And so I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'll go ahead and do that. And I incorporated a company like within the next month and then like worked on it all throughout my undergrad experience. So, yes. And I'll admit, in that story is what I love and admire about Amber, but also a reminder of what's possible right now, right? That in some ways, you know, sort of that ability to identify a problem and then actually tackle it in a way that's significant is available to like everyone, if only you're willing to put in the work. And to be honest, if you've got like sort of like all the necessary skills to actually pull it off. And so it's just, what's exciting is that it's just sitting right there you know, waiting for someone to say, oh, let me solve this problem or let me just chew glass so that I can actually like figure out how to solve this problem. And there's so many things sitting on the floor like that right now. Yeah. And I would argue actually that the ability to build stuff on top of machine learning right now is much easier than it was like five, seven years ago. Like you can start building models in like no code um, or like very low code solutions, which I think is just like unlimited potential there. I am a, a huge fan of no code. I, I've I've been no coding before before they called it no code. I have this like blog post in 2018 of me stitching together Weebly, Zapier, and Airtable, and I just they called it the Watt stack, and then they you know came out with no code. So I'm totally totally into that. 
On that trend, though, because building technology has become a little easier, do you know, or at least getting a product out has become easier, people can do it from more places. You know, it's not just San Francisco, it's just not just New York. You know, you said yourself, Amber, you're from, you know, Orlando. So I'm kind of curious for James, like, how do you and or just Bloomberg Beta as a whole look at like the world post COVID and investment opportunities? Like, did a lot change? deciding where to invest or is not that much changed, I guess, like from your perspective on where, where the investment interest is kind of leaning post COVID. You know, I think great founders come from anywhere. Right. And I think that certainly we're investing in more geographies now than we would have in the past in part because it's easier to do things like this, but at the same time, there is something about the energy of a density of talent that just you can't deny. And it remains true that that whole area from like San Jose up to Mill Valley, like there's just a density of talent there and your ability not just to like find someone smart on Twitter, but actually literally find someone smart on Twitter, convince them to have coffee with you or a walk with you is just so powerful, right? And so I think part of what's happened even in the last few months, right, is that you've seen that density of talent get back together and when they get back together in other places, they talk about politics or construction or finance. But when they get together in San Francisco, they talk with a level of depth and sophistication around technology-based startups that you just don't see anywhere else in the world. I can concur. I live in Phoenix. And although I, I wish I wish we had that energy, you know, it doesn't exist. I think a very few places in the world for sure have that. So, so, so I like that perspective. Um, you know, one thing that I that I'm also curious about is one, you know, I found when I got into tech that I thought it was all these things. And then I got into it and I realized, oh, it's all, all these things. And it might be a little different from what I expected. So I'm kind of curious for you, Amber, ever since breaking into tech, you know, and get, getting started either in VC or just with your with your company, what have been things that have kind of surprised you about the industry that you maybe didn't, you know, think about or realize when you were kind of, you know, looking outward when you were just getting started? Yeah, I think the most surprising thing is how casual this industry is. Um, I think VC specifically, um, it's sort of this like very weird outlier asset class with like, you know, it seems when you're a founder, like there are very little rules, but like when you look into the details, there are lots of rules. But I, I remember when I was like first starting a company, I, I was sort of, I had culture shock by how like casually people were tossing around these terms. Like, you know, people were saying like, oh, you could go raise like a $5 million round tomorrow. And it was just like, you know, so, so casual. And I also thought that all of the power was held by VCs um, when I was like a young founder. And so I would interpret like, you know, signal of um, scoring a meeting with like a good fund as like, oh, I'm doing well as a company. Um, and I think that's actually like the wrong signal to be benchmarking for as a founder um, because VCs, our ultimate goal is to see everything in the market um, and to basically get a panopticon view. And so scoring a meeting with a VC like may mean a lot to a founder, but to a VC, it's just another data point of like collecting in the market. Um, so my advice to young founders is like when raising specifically to do it in like a short period of time, do it like target a two week raise, and then don't talk to VCs like outside of that period. Um, and 
like be heads down building product and selling um, because that's ultimately like the better signal to look for. I like going down this path a little bit, you know, James, what are some things that you maybe wish founders pitching you or founders just in the world knew more about raising capital or more about the VC world? Is there any other thing that you, you know, you could just tell them if you had a large megaphone? <laughs> I mean, I think that we've been lucky in that for the last 10 years, we've had a consistent, understandable, legible pattern of how businesses get built. And that in some ways we've been riding the insights of Salesforce and other SaaS companies for a while. And I think what's interesting about that is that you've got to realize that like that's a very specific game and that lots of VCs are playing that game along relatively narrow parameters. And part of what's exciting about the world we live in right now is the fact that like those rules are fundamentally broken, right? That public markets have told us that like they no longer believe in subscription software as the magic sauce that it used to be. And instead everyone's looking and everyone's looking for the next dominant business model, but also the next dominant way to be successful using software. There's a way in which, you know, sort of, I will often joke in Amber's heard this many times that I kind of believe in two things. I believe in Jesus and I believe in software. And I think there continues to be this way in which software as this materialized sort of set of like long numbers continues to be sort of a, a like sort of have an almost infinite number of potential business models and the opportunities to try these new things is out there. And right now, everyone is trying to figure it out, right? And so there's a way in which you read that blog post from TechCrunch three years ago or from some famous VC, like... Those are interesting data points, but the rules have changed. And at the core, you're still trying to use information and technology to build exciting businesses. And moving more towards like your firm and what you're doing, I think you make it actually really easy for these founders building the future to find you. Because I, I, I just before this interview went to your website and I, you know, I, I Googled it, I, I clicked it, and then it automatically took me to this like, crazy, long, awesome, uh, you know, get GitHub or just document on how on how to pretty much work with your firm. So I think um, I'd love to hear from James on this. Tell us what is this long document? And you know, what's in it? And like, why did you decide to make your website just a long get GitHub or get whatever you call it a long repository of best ways to work with Bloomberg data? And in this case, I give a lot of credit to my partner, Roy Bahat, who started the firm. I think that his clear sort of vision there was that, I don't know, we could spend a bunch of time arguing about the right color for the website and the, whether or not you should have a fancy picture or a casual picture. But like, who cares about that, right? That like, if we're going to take founders seriously, why not just tell them how we think about the world and why not just be clear about it? And I think that willingness to be transparent is partly, you know, sort of a reflection of the values that we've got both as a firm and, you know, thanks to our only investor, Bloomberg, right, is a sort of thing that we've continued to prize and try to emphasize. And now, does that mean that we're always perfect about it? No, but it does mean that at least we've put ourselves out there to be held accountable. And for those listening, if you if you do go to their website, you'll just be redirected to this very, very, very conclusive document on exactly, literally exactly what you like investing in. So I, mean, I guess I'll just ask for people that are just listening to this in the car or they're not able to log on. Uh, Amber, 
what does Bloomberg Beta like investing in? Who do they like investing in? Can you kind of walk us through, you know, some of the things that might be on that doc that founders might be interested in? Hmm. So we broadly invest in future work. Um, that's the overall mandate. And um, we also focus on machine intelligence. And the way that sort of works together is sort of this thesis that, you know, James, Roy, Karen, um, who are, you know, the partners at Bloomberg Beta, sort of sprung together about how the way that humans work together will be radically transformed by how machines continue to improve in our society. And we like that area a lot um, about ways in which, you know, humans and civilization can continue to improve on various types of markets and how they work together. Um, you know, I feel like, do we have a specific founder archetype I'm not sure if there's one encompassing for all of our uh, founders in our portfolio, but like one thing that I love to see in founders are people who are just like extremely charismatic. James and I do this fun thing where we um, talk about how charismatic we think each of the founders we talk to are. And I'm, I'm not sure if we've done the data on this, James, but I will argue that like all of the founders we've invested in recently have scored quite high on that charisma scale. And then when we say charismatic, we don't mean that they're good speakers, nor do, do we mean that they're good looking, right? But instead, charisma is a very specific gift around that ability to transfer energy, to create energy in conversations so that when you're with someone, you suddenly feel like, oh, more things are possible and I will chew glass for this person. And I think that sort of that sort of ability to create something collectively is so hard. And so you do need founders to do that. And one of the funny things, of course, is that um, we've done various sort of attempts to study patterns of success for founders. And I don't know, they're as arbitrary as the astrology, right? I mean, I think they're just not that useful. But the question we do ask is, are they charismatic? And do they have the chance to change the history of human capitalism, right? And so, you know, modest goals, modest goals. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, well, you mentioned in the beginning of this interview that you you both work very closely with each other. Um, and Amber, you're you're being newer to the the industry. I'm curious, like, what have been one or two things that you've learned from James, you know, since working with him, or learned from just the firm that you, you know, the from Bloomberg Beta? Yeah, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky to get to work with James. Um, and what is something that I think I've learned a lot from James? Um, I think James is incredibly sharp at distilling you know, the essence of like why a specific company will be like radically like different in viewing like um, in like a business perspective. Um, I think especially when you're young and technical, you approach things from a product perspective and also from like analyzing the tech. But I think James knows the market landscape of AI developer tools um, and, you know, software in general so well that he can distill it down within like 10 minutes of talking to someone about what is the differentiator. Now I have to, I have to do the flip now because we got someone that like doing AI in space in high school, like what's going on here? So James, what's something or a couple of things that you've learned from Amber since working with her? I, mean, I think the thing that I'm reminded most in sort of working with Amber is just the value of putting in the work, 
right? I mean, I think her ability to sort of like think things through and sort of just grind is a reminder of like that energy, to be honest, is still rare, right? In theory, anyone can do this, but it still remains true that few are sort of actually willing to do that. And then her openness to sort of like looking at something from a different angle or being willing to go down some rat hole with me is something I really, really appreciate. And then occasionally ends up yielding like sort of original insights. I think that um, that plus like, you know, the other obvious thing, which is her ability to sort of connect and empathize quickly, sort of like there was this little test we did with her early on, which we basically threw her into one of our biggest parties. And then we went around and talked to everyone she talked to. And everyone was like, oh, yes, that Amber person, she was super memorable. Right. And I think like that's like an important character characteristic of not just great BCs, but, you know, successful people in general. I love that. I love that. And to round us out, you know, well, first of all, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, both of you. Uh, this has been fantastic. Um, I learned a lot. I know everyone listening has learned a lot too. If people want to connect with you on the internet after uh, after this uh, interview, where can they find you? Maybe James to start. Do you have Twitter, newsletter, you know, podcasts? Like how can someone connect with you on the inter interwebs? Amber and I are super easy to connect with over Twitter. And our email addresses are super easy to guess if you sort of liked, looked up our website and our first name. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you uh, both for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And best of luck finding those people that are going to change the world, uh, you know, 10 times over. Thanks again for coming on. We'll see you at this next meeting. <laughs> All right. Good luck. <laughs> Bye.